A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. When my friend Eckar was a kid, growing up in Israel, his mom would tell him a story every night before he went to sleep. But it was almost always a story that she would invent, like right then, on the spot. Never read him any children's books. And for my mom, the, the idea of uh, telling us stories from children's books was very much like kind of a ordering a pizza instead of making us a dinner. It would mean that she doesn't love us enough. So almost every night, it was a custom-made story with flying camels or a room that people would walk into and lose the power of speech and all sorts of other made-up things. But always, Edgar says, the details and the feelings in the stories echoed whatever was going on in Edgar's life that particular day. Edgar's mom uh, did this for Edgar because her parents had done it for her when she was a little girl in Poland during World War II. During wartime, the greatest gifts that she got from her parents were the stories that they told her. Because they couldn't give her food, they couldn't give her clothes, they could only tell her stories. And they would put all the love and knowledge and imagination in it so those stories would be amazing. And she would tell me that when they would begin the story, she would be afraid that she would fall asleep in the middle. And then if she fall asleep in the middle, they would never finish the story. So basically nobody will know how the story ends. So my mom <laughs> kind of grew up about this idea that a story was like kind of a hug or a kiss, or it was just something that you give or share with somebody that you love a lot. After all that, uh, Edgar grew up to be a short story writer. He's Edgar Carrot, has lots of books. There were uh, times that his mother would not invent a story, but tell him some story from her past. And he loved those too. As a kid, uh, Edgar had a favorite that he would ask her to retell more than any other story. And this story takes place uh, in the very beginning of the war, escaping the little town they lived in. Escaping right before the Germans arrived, the Jews. In the story, Eckhart's mom is just five years old. She remembered her mother holding her hand and carrying her baby brother. And they're running as fast as they can. You know, they're running and running and running. And all the people of the village are, or the town are running in front of them. And everybody is much faster than my mother, who's a little child, and her mother, who's carrying a baby. So basically, if it's a race, they are definitely on the last place. Right. But my mom kind of sees uh, up ahead of them something that uh, looks like a big grandfather clock that seems to be moving. Wait, wait, somebody's carrying a grandfather clock with them as they're fleeing? Apparently there was somebody who was carrying it on, on their back. But for my mom, from the distance, it just looked like kind of a cartoon. A cartoon, because from where they were behind, what she sees is this clock, right, with two uh, feet sticking out underneath it, trudging along, and then an arm poking out on either side. And it kind of amuses her because, you know, she's a little child. And, and even when she told me about that, you know, many, many years after that, I knew that when she would tell this bitch, she would always laugh, you know. And, and it also amused her that she was in the middle, like out of town, running and she could tell what the time was every second, which is something that is amazing, you know, when you're a five-year-old out in the country to have a clock that will tell you exactly what the time. You don't have to ask your mom. You don't have to ask anybody. So for her, it's fun. They're fleeing. 
And she's not feeling danger. She's just like, this is kind of fun. Yeah, but when they, they got closer to the clock, she could start hearing the man gasping, the man who carried this clock on his back, because apparently the clock was too heavy. And she said that just as they were about to reach him, she saw the man collapse flat on his face with the clock on, on top of him. Oh, my God. And, and my mother wanted to stop to check what's with this guy. But her mother said, we have to run. We have to run. We don't have time. And, and they ran a little bit more. And then her mother said, listen, you know, there's no way we're going to escape the Germans. Uh, our only chance is if we go into a cabbage field. There was a cabbage field on the side of the road and hides her until they pass. And they, they went into the cabbage field and lie down. But as soon as they lie down on the field, her baby brother begins crying. And my grandmother and my mom's mother is afraid that, you know, that because of the sound, the Germans will come. So she started breastfeeding him. And the, my mother said that, that this moment where her mother breastfeeds uh, her kid brother, she said that, that the sky were kind of blue and she was in the field and she was lying on her back. Everything seemed very normal for a second. That's a moment in the story Edgar always loved, even as a little boy, where time kind of stops and the war stops. And it's his mom and her mom and her brother just there. And then she saw a shadow. And when she raised her eyes, she saw a German soldier with a rifle in the hand looking at her and at her mother who was breastfeeding a baby. And there was something at the, at, I guess, at this kind of strange scene that they affected the soldier. And the soldier basically looked at them, but pretended as if he was looking through them, as if he wasn't seeing them, even though he was very close. And then after a few seconds, he just kind of turned his back and left, as if he was escaping. And, and I guess from a perspective of a five-year-old, she really, really felt that her family in this uh, battle was able to win against the Nazis, you know. Her baby brother was cute enough. Her mother was motherly enough. She was sisterly enough. And the skies were blue enough that the soldier suddenly remembered that, you know, that he had a human side too and he couldn't take it. She would talk about the soldier as if he was running away, you know. It wasn't as if, like, he decided to leave. Recently, after all these years, his mom's been dead a little while now, Eckers tried to write about her. And when he got to writing this story about the cabbage patch, for the first time, he says, he realized just how close they all came to dying. It really had never hit him before. The way his mother always told the story, it was so, from a kid's point of view, that there was no sense of danger in it. Even hiding in the field, it seemed like kind of a children's game. Like, hide and seek. Don't make any noise. When the soldier appears, he's just some man standing there. So it makes the story as tricky to figure out how to tell. You kind of have to choose between describing, you know, the reality of the war, the menacing reality, and his mother's reality where she often doesn't understand or notice any of that. Ecker, I should say, writes a lot about his family. He did a whole book about his dad. But he says he's always found it impossible to write about his mom, for a bunch of reasons, actually, including one big one that has nothing to do with the war at all, but with who she was. 
the thing about my mother is that uh, that it's like uh, like God has many names right he's a vengeful God and a merciful God then I think that my mom had this kind of thing that you know if if life is a Hollywood movie she's Maria in West Side story but she's also a uh, Thanos in In the Avengers Marvel Universe you know she's she, <laughs> she, and when you would meet her it would be like kind of I don't know super energy super compassion super aggression she had this kind of things that if she wanted to say something she really didn't care what anyone would say but for example when she wanted to listen to Wagner you know in the, at the times when she In Israel, you were not supposed to listen to Wagner, who was known as an anti-Semite and who was loved by Nazis, you know, then my mother said, you know, it's my home and that's the mu- music that I like and I don't care if Nazis like them, you know, they, they liked apples too and I still eat apples and she, she didn't care, you know, she, she just did her own thing. She was capable of very extreme action. And it was hard uh, not to want to leave out some of the most aggressive parts of her. And it was hard for him to get her across in the way he saw her. And it felt very strange that, you know, he had these books and he had this whole life as a writer, but he couldn't figure out how to write about his own mom. And then he started drafting these little fragments. Short stories that were just like three or four paragraphs long, tiny stories. And he wrote dozens of them. For this museum in Berlin that wanted to collaborate with him. Most of the stories didn't amount to much. They'd start and stop and go nowhere, and uh, crumpled up copies of these incomplete, discarded stories ended up as part of the exhibit that they made. But uh, the stories that worked, I read them a few months ago, and they just killed me, some of them. Sharp little shards of stories that together capture something complicated about his mom. And um, Edgar and I decided to try to adapt them uh, here for the radio. Uh, so we've done it. And uh, today on our show, it's this American Life, by the way, from WBEC Chicago. I'm Ira Glass. What you're going to hear is uh, this unusual kind of portrait of his mom told in these uh, quick little stories that Edgar is going to read. It's eight stories in all, plus uh, occasional bits of conversation between him and me. His mom, Orna Carrot was her name, made it to Israel after World War II uh, when she was 14. That's where she lived her life and raised her kids. In the stories, um, Edgar has changed the name of one little boy who gets beaten up by another boy because he didn't want to embarrass the guy today. Edgar's wife, Shira, and his son, Lev, show up in a story. And we'll start with this. Story number one. Bedtime story. The very first time my mother told me about her father, I was in kindergarten. I remember lying under the covers in my pajamas while mom sat on the edge of my bed and relayed the story with pride. Soon after the Germans occupied Poland, she told me, one of my mother's non-Jewish neighbors began collaborating with the Nazis. He was a short man with black hair and a large nose. As my mother said, he looked like a caricature of a Jew. And he took advantage of this to pose as one, which allowed him to uncover the hiding places used by his Jewish neighbors and turn them in. After the Germans forced all the Jews to move to the Warsaw Ghetto, mom and her family no longer saw this neighbor, although they continued to hear horrific stories about his informing on people. 
One morning, my mother and her father walked out of the ghetto with a simple plan. They would buy a loaf of bread on the black market, sell individual slices in the ghetto to cover their costs, and keep a couple of pieces for the family. They snuck out and walked down the streets of Warsaw without wearing the yellow stars that all Jews had to wear. This was extremely dangerous, but since her father was blonde with blue eyes and she was fair-haired too, they hoped they wouldn't raise any suspicion. Unfortunately, in the crowded town square, they ran into their old neighbor, the informant, who didn't think twice before grabbing my grandfather by the shirt collar and yelling, Jews! Jews! My grandfather tried to break free, but he realized that even if he could, they would instantly be surrounded by a passerby who would never let them escape. He looked at my mother and gave her a wink meant to reassure her, or at least to make sure she knew that even in this terrifying moment, he was thinking only of her. Then he grabbed the neighbor by his collar and shouted, Jew! Jew! I caught a Jew! The crowd looked on in confusion at the two men, my tall, fair-haired grandfather and the short, black-haired neighbor, who looked, according to my mother's description, a bit like me, clutching each other's clothes and screeching, Jew! Within seconds, a few people fell on the neighbor, pinned him to the ground, and kicked him in the head and body until he was dead. And that was your grandfather, declared mom with a smile and stood up. Before leaving my room, she leaned over, kissed my forehead, and said, Sweet dreams. Story number two. Razor. When I was a child, my mother hugged me all the time. All mother hugs her kids a lot, I know, but my mother hugged me more than a lot. I liked it. But over time, I began to notice that when she touched me, it was always with the back of her hand, never the palm. One evening at bedtime, my mom finished telling me a story and then stroked my face with the back of her hand. Mom, I asked her, how come all the other moms touch like this? I demonstrated a caress with the palm of my hand. And you're the only one who touches like this. I demonstrated again with the back of my hand. My mother smiled and kissed me on the forehead. When I was little, she said, I didn't have a home like you do, only an orphanage. And the people there, some of them didn't always want to be good to me. So to be on the safe side, I stuck a piece of gum to the palm of my hand and I lodged a razor blade in the gum. She showed me how she stuck the gum to her hand and then inserted an imaginary blade into that invisible gum. When she finished, she held the back of her hand to my face and caressed me gently. This, she whispered, is how I touched the people I liked. And this, she let the palm of her hand hover millimeters from my face without touching it, is how I touched the ones I didn't like so much. 
The palm of mom's hand was so close to my face that I could feel its warmth. The blade didn't touch me, but I knew it was there. Palm of the hand, back of the hand. Until that evening, I never knew they were so different. Ekar? Yeah. You've told me that, that one of the things you want to be careful about is you don't want to overemphasize your mom's experience in the war. I- explain that. Explain why. Well, you know, I think that, that there was something about uh, my parents that they felt that the moment that they were seen as Holocaust survivors, they were kind of losing something at this moment. They, they became less of an individual and more of, I don't know, a symbol. My parents really, really disliked that. I felt for my mom that the moment that she was seen as a Holocaust survivor, it would be a little bit like a wild horse, that uh, it was as if the Nazis had branded her. Hmm. She can't take this thing off her, you know? But the moment that she could be this uh, funny, red-headed woman who reads a lot and loves to dance and who had happened to be in the Holocaust, this was her victory. Eckhart, okay, so with that in mind, maybe we should still summarize very quickly what happened to her in the war, just to give listeners a general sense. I know her family died. Did um, did she end up in a concentration camp? No. My mom uh, was with her parents in the Warsaw Ghetto, and later they were transferred to another ghetto. Coming to the end of the war, she was uh, totally on her own. And uh, kind of, you know, running from one hiding place to another, trying to get food from where she could. And hiding? No, my, my mother was never in hiding. It's like the way that she survived was more kind of mingling, you know, with the Polish, pretending to be a Nanju. And my mom told me that during the war, it was much easier, you know, for children, you know, to move around and uh, and to smuggle things than grown-ups, you know, because you usually wouldn't ask them for ID and, and it would be more difficult to differentiate them, especially my mom, that uh, didn't look uh, very Jewish and that uh, she was uh, not only fluent with Polish as a first language and not with Yiddish like many other Jews, but uh, she spoke fluent German. How did she speak German that young? When the war started, uh, the first thing her father did was uh, to teach her German. And he said to her that the moment you can communicate with people, it, it makes it more difficult for them to dehumanize you. He felt that this would be something that could save her life. Yeah, you told me a story about her on a bridge. Just tell that story. There is more than one, but I, I, I'll tell the ones that I like, and if you don't like it, I'll tell another one, okay? Okay. Uh, so one day when she left the ghetto uh, uh, on some smuggling mission, she took a, a, her little backpack. You know, she would usually get bread and then put it in the backpack. And as she was walking in the streets of Warsaw, a, a German soldier grabbed her empty backpack and when she came to take it from him, you know, he just kind of uh, threw it to another soldier. And they started kind of uh, 
taunting her, you know, not not giving her the bag back. And basically, my mom was uh, about nine years old outside of the ghetto. You know, if somebody would catch her, she would be shot on sight uh, as a Jew escaping the ghetto. And as they were throwing the backpack from one to another, she saw an SS officer. So she ran to the officer and spoke to him politely in German. And she said, the Excuse me, Mr. Officer, but uh, can you help me? There are two soldiers here who uh, disrespect me and uh, they're not acting the way a soldier should act. And uh, she brought the SS officer with them and he shouted both those soldiers and they gave her the backpack. That series is just amazing that she had the presence of mind that young. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think the, you know, the way that she say, says it, It's kind of like my late grandfather, he trained her and she would quote all kinds of things that my grandfather would teach her when she was in the ghetto. So one of the things that she said, people can't look inside you so they can never know how hungry you are. But if you're dirty, they'll see it in a second. So for example, she told me that part of, of her surviving uh, outside of the ghetto was this idea that she she made a point of being extremely clean, you know, even when there were no means of being clean. And and all, all her life, my mother looked like, you know, somebody on a Vogue magazine cover, you know, always mm-hmm. with makeup and everything in place. It's this idea that you can carry yourself and show your confidence. And if you do that, then the chances that the world will trample you becomes lower. Story number three. Fabric. Before I was born, my mother worked in advertising. She invented slogans, produced commercials, and bargained with newspapers over the ad prices. She really loved it, but it was a demanding job and she wanted to devote as much time as possible to her kids. So when I was a baby, she quit and opened a fabric store. It was called Fabric Basement, and it was in a basement, with no windows. She chose it because of the location, across the street and a few doors down from our apartment. It was damp and dark and a little musty, but everything inside the store was decorated in good taste. Mom used to take me with her to work every day and put me on the counter in a bassinet. I grew up listening to her stern pronouncement on questions of cleavage and rivets and closely watching the eager women who entered the dimly lit basement to search for the perfect fabric and cut for the dress of their dreams. When I think about it now, I see my mother hoisting heavy rolls of fabric around in that narrow, dank space. I know it was hard work and didn't pay much. But when I was little, the fabric basement seemed to me like a sort of secret kingdom where my mother reigned supreme. Her subjects came to her with their hopes and dreams, and she, the queen mother, proclaimed which options made them look thinner and which fatter. What was flattering and what looked cheap. She spoke with no hesitation or excessive politeness, just as a queen should. And the women kept coming to our little side street in Ramadgan from all over the country, 
so that my mother could flip through the stacks of Burda magazine that were piled neatly on the counter and select the patterns that would accentuate their advantages and conceal everything else. Not everyone can be beautiful, mom told me once, but if you make an effort and you don't give up, you can always be less ugly. Story number four, rain day. It happened 11 years ago. My wife Shira, my son Lev and I got up at 7 a.m. Shira was making a tuna fish sandwich for Lev, who had just started first grade. Lev and I stood by the window looking out at the rain and I explained in a fatherly tone, he would have to stay home and play with me and mom today instead of going to school because it was raining. Lev received this news joyfully. Shira, not so much. What do you mean he's not going to school? She asked sharply. It's raining, I replied, pointing outside. So, Shira wanted to know. So when it rains, you don't go to school, I explained. All she could do was repeat my words. When it rains, you don't go to school? I nodded. Okay, she said. And who made that rule? We had very few rules when I was growing up. We had to be polite to our parents. We had to give a coin to every homeless person we saw in the street. If someone elderly got on the bus, we had to offer them our seat. And we couldn't go to school on rainy days. The reason, according to my mother, was that with all due respect for school, they didn't teach anything important enough to be worth getting wet for. My mother lost her parents at a very young age, which is why, as she explained to my siblings and me, she never learned how to be a mother. Girls learn how to be mothers from their own mothers, she said. Every girl watches her mother to see how she raises children. But I didn't have a mother for long enough to learn everything, which is why I have to improvise now. So if you see me doing something you don't think is that great, you should always tell me. I was very pleased to hear my mother say that. And on the few occasions when she imposed a rule or a demand that I found unfair, I always told her, and she really did listen. But as from staying home from school when it rained, I was completely on board with that. Sadly, Shira's childhood wasn't as magical as mine. And Lev had to pay for that. The poor kid grabbed an umbrella and went to school. Ira? Yes, Ikar. So, uh, I was just wondering, this next story, if it's not, it, it doesn't feel kind of a bit strange that, that you get like those short pieces and then suddenly a very long one and there is no something before it, I don't know, like in our, us talking or music or I don't know. Or, well, this know could I be mean? the thing that goes before it, this thing that you're saying right now. I, I don't know. You, you're the radio guy if, if you think it will work. I, I do. Uh, so so uh, here is that story. 
Story number five. You never forget a smell. At my elementary school, there were always fights, and that was just fine with me. It was routine. The fights always followed the same pattern. First cursing, then pushing, then choking and kicking until one of the kids yelled uncle, and then it was over. Everyone would head to the corner store for chocolate milk or popsicle, like nothing had happened. In other words, no one at school was ever afraid of a little fist fighting. But everyone, even the strongest, meanest kids, was afraid to get in a fight with Tamir. Tamir was a year ahead of me. He wasn't big, and he wasn't very muscular either. But whenever he got into a fight with someone in the schoolyard, all the kids who gathered to watch were overcome by a terrible sense of despair. Because they knew a fight with Tamir never ended with chocolate milk and a popsicle at the corner store. Best case scenario, Tamir won and someone ended up in the emergency room. Worst case, he lost and the fight went on forever. Not a single kid at school ever saw him surrender. Kids much taller than him, who were already shaving, could pin him to the ground for hours, hurt him, humiliate him, feed him sand, but Tamir would still be cursing and making threats. As the fight wore on, we all knew that no matter how plainly and painfully the other kid was winning, the second he let go, Tamir would be up in a shot and chasing him down with a rock, a metal rod, or whatever weapon he could find. If a teacher or another grown-up tried to intervene, they'd get clubbed too. Bottom line, if anyone had asked me when I was 10 years old what I was most afraid of in the world, I definitely would have said Tamir. Every Wednesday after school, I would meet my mother at the grocery store and help her carry the bags home. She would wait outside the store dressed like a queen, in a dress or a trendy suit. She always wore lipsticks that matched the color of her dress or scarf and a fashionable hat perched on her head like a crown. As I walked along busy, dirty Bialik Street beside her, loaded with grocery bags, I thought she looked like a stubborn Cinderella, one who insisted on remaining a princess even after the clock struck midnight and everything turned back into a pumpkin. Our apartment building was at the top of a hill, and I always got sweaty and out of breath on the way up with all the groceries. Sometimes I asked for a rest stop, which mom would use to smoke a cigarette. One day, on our break, we heard a strange howl. It sounded like a cat's yelp mixed with a human sub. The second my mother heard this peculiar sound, she tossed her cigarette on the sidewalk and started quickly marching uphill in the direction the noise was coming from. I picked up all the bags of groceries and tried to keep up with her. Before I'd even reached our building, I could see Tamir standing on the sidewalk, waving a stick over his head. At his feet lay Yaki, a boy from my class who lived across the street from us. And when Tamir thumped him on the back with the stick, Yaki whimpered. He barely moved. I was completely paralyzed. But not my mother. She marched over quickly on her stilettos. Tamir ignored her 
and landed another blow on Yaki's back. My mother grabbed Tamir's arm with one hand and his hair with the other. Tamir tried to wriggle out of her grip, swearing and blustering. Let me go, he screamed. Let me go right now, I'll fuck you up, you bitch. Terrified, I looked at my mother. She didn't seem to understand who she was dealing with. I'd seen Tamir stab a teacher with a compass and throw a brick at the principal, and I knew exactly how this would end. My mother would eventually have to let go, and then all hell would break loose. I wanted to say something to warn her, but I didn't know exactly what to tell her. The only good advice I could give her about Tamir was not to mess with him, but it was too late for that. Mom twisted Tamir's arm behind his back, which made him drop the stick. Yaki was still on the ground. Just wait, you bitch, Tamir hissed. I'll tell you a new one. My mother looked at him coldly and signaled for me to come closer. I moved towards him, dragging the grocery bags and stopped a few steps away. That seemed close enough. But mom beckoned me to come closer. It's all right, she said in a reassuring voice. Don't be afraid, he won't bite. I took a few more steps until I was standing within spitting distance of Tamil's sweaty face. Leave me alone, he screeched. Let me go or I'll whack you. Shh, mom said, still using her soothing voice. In a minute, as soon as you listen to what I have to say. Tamir stopped talking and turned to my mother with an expectant look. Do you see this boy? My mother asked and she held Tamir's face close to mine. This is my son. Now, take a deep sniff. Good. You never forget a smell. Tamir's face was barely an inch away from mine. I was so close that I could see the blood vessels in the whites of his eyes as he gave me a menacing look. And this, Mom said, turning Tamir's head toward Yaki, who managed to sit up on his knees, is his friend, Yaki. As far as I'm concerned, this whole neighborhood is yours. Except these two. You can hit, bite, stab, steal, anything you like. But if you so much as touch them, if I touch them, then what? Tamir said with a chilling smile. You call the cops? I've had the cops called on me ten times. Oh, the police, God forbid, Mom said. They have more important things to worry about. She dragged Tamir over to the big dumpster next to our building. If you touch my son, or Yaki, I'll kill you. And then I'll throw your body into this trash can. She was pulling Tamir's hair now, making him look right into the dumpster. And the next morning, a truck will come and remove your body with the trash and bury it far, far away. And no one will even come looking for you or try to find out what happened. Because no one will miss you. As a child, you quickly learn to identify when your parents are making empty threats and when they mean what they say. Mom's tone, detached, almost bored, was her ordinary voice, the one I recognized from conversations with the ladies at her fabric shop 
or people she ran into on the street. And so, within seconds, I stopped being scared that Tamir would break free and beat us up, and started being scared that he'd die. My mom put her face right up to Tamir's, and he looked at her, wide-eyed. You might be a bully, Tamir, but you're not stupid. Now, I want you to look at me very closely and tell me whether I'm lying or if it's really going to happen. Tamir kept staring at my mother as if he were hypnotized. And after a pause, he said almost in a whisper, I promise you, Miss Kurt, I'll never touch them. Very good, said Mom and let go of him. I knew you were a smart boy. They stood facing each other for some time, a 12-year-old boy in a school uniform and a little woman in a red dress and high heels. Mom slowly lifted her hand and caressed Tamir's sweaty hair. Very good, she repeated softly. Now that we're clear on everything, you should go home. It will be dark soon. And it's getting cold. Edgar? Yes? I think all the stories that you've told so far, your mom is the hero. And I wonder, are there stories where you felt embarrassed for her, or she embarrassed you, or she isn't the hero in that way? Well, first of all, I think that she was inherently the hero and fighting for things. But I can say that, you know, that sometimes... <laughs> She she would protect her loved ones a little bit too much, you know. I, I remember that when my father uh, was dying from cancer, he had a room all alone in the hospital. And my dad was, was a heavy smoker. He died from uh, smoker's cancer. And he used to smoke in this room. And you're not allowed, allowed to smoke in the hospital. And uh, I remember one time that uh, a woman... Uh, kind of entered the room and she said, um, uh, is somebody smoking here because I can smell smoke? And my mom said, no, I, I can't smell anything. And the wo- woman left the room and returned after five minutes and she said, I'm sure that somebody is smoking here. And my mom said, I don't know, like, I don't see anybody smoking. How are you so sure? And the woman left and then she returned a third time and she said, don't lie to me. I know that there is somebody smoking in this room. And my mom looked at her with ice-cold eyes and said to her, in English, go to hell. And kind of slammed the door in her face. And, you know, and I I was there and it was very embarrassing. The the woman never opened the door again. But it was embarrassing. (laughs) It was very embarrassing, you know. I mean, I I think that uh, my mom many times overreacted. I get that, but but um, I'll just point out that I asked you for a story where she's not the hero, and in this story, she's still the hero. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Uh, but I think that it also it's something that had to do with her charisma, that, that I mean, hero, villain, we can argue about it, you know, uh, but uh, she was the main character, you know. 
He was smack there in the center. You know, let's say if we would wait for a doctor and there would be like 20 people in the hall, mm -hmm. then I would say four out of five times before we'll get to the doctor, it would be, they would kind of gather around my mother and she would tell them, I tell you what you should tell your wife. Come here, sit next to me. I'll explain to you. Oh, what they shouldn't eat for dinner, but like she would become some this instant uh, guru, you know, a uh, guru. Yeah, she kind of projected this feeling that if you follow her, you get somewhere good. Okay, so Eckhart, we have to get to the station break, the ID break now. So what do, what do what do you do on ID breaks? Well, it's like a, a minute that we give to the radio stations to like do like their local stuff. And what what do we do during that break? Oh, we just we just hang out here for one minute. Cool. <laughs> okay, okay. And then uh, and then, do you want to read the the wording that gets us into the ID break? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Ah, uh, uh, do it now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now. Uh, okay. I thought you were going to say something. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I, I'm doing it. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program is this thing that um, Edgar Carrot and I concocted that we're calling Half-Baked Stories About My Dead Mom, where Edgar's trying to create a picture of his mother, Orna, through these fragments of memory. Eight very short stories that he's written about her, plus some conversations. Some uh, basic facts about his mom's life before we go any further in this hour. After her time in a Polish orphanage and some time in Czechoslovakia and France, she arrived in Israel as a teenager on a ship whose Hebrew name roughly translates to don't mess with us or you will not threaten us, which Edgar says is the perfect name for the boat that his mother would arrive on. At 18 or so, she married a professional soccer player and divorced him a few months later. Went to live in France for a year or so. She was an incredible dancer, won dance competitions, danced once with the singer Jacques Brel. The way um, she met Edgar's dad, he was drunk and um, peed on the French embassy, not knowing it was the French embassy. Cops thought it was a political statement, threw him in a squad car, and ran off to get the guys he was with. Edgar's dad saw his mom walking down the street, just walking by at that moment, and wanted to meet her. So he stepped out of the police car, and he introduced himself as Inspector Carrot. And he asked her if she saw anything that happened. And she said, no, no, I just got here. So he said, I need to get your details anyway. And he took her address and the phone number. And uh, then the police came back and they, they handcuffed my father and got him back in the police car. <laughs> and my mom went back to a flatmate and she said, you know, that's just my luck. You know, I gave my phone number to a serial killer. When Edgar's dad sobered up, he had a hard time actually convincing her that he was not a criminal of some sort. They were a good match. Both had been children in Poland during the war. So Edgar says neither of them had any idea what a normal childhood or a normal home would be. So there was something in their friendships that it was half like a married couple, but it was also half like kindergarten children playing together. And, and I think that hmm. the kindergarten part seemed much more powerful than the grown-up part. After his mom died, Edgar found that she had kept all the little notes that his father had written her over the years, going back a half century. Most of them were things like, 
We're out of milk. Can you pick some up? Or I'll be home at nine, not eight. She seemed to have saved everyone. Story number six, the stuff. For my fifth birthday, my father took me to see Bambi. The movie was a lot more real than anything I'd seen. And when the hunters shot and killed Bambi's mom, I stood up on my seat in the movie theater and started shouting tearfully about how wrong this turn of events was and demanded they stop showing the film immediately. My father was slightly embarrassed by my display. Why are you crying? my dad asked. What's wrong? They killed Bambi's mom for no reason, I cried. Desperate to calm me down, my dad replied. No, no, th- there is a reason. They're going to make a yummy schnitzel out of her. And just like that, on the day I turned five, I became a vegetarian. Israel in the early 70s wasn't exactly a nation of vegans. When my mom realized that her pint-sized boy was losing weight, she swung into action. You hardly eat anything, she sighed after dinner one night. But that's fine. If you don't like the food you've tried, I just have to invent something new for you. And that was how the stuff was born. The stuff was made of dried, shriveled up soybean flakes that looked a bit like pet kibble. My mom got a hold of the soy flakes from a vegan rabbi in Jerusalem, to whom she was introduced by the American sales clerk at a natural food store on the outskirts of Ramat Gan. The soy flakes had the texture of pigeon droppings and no flavor whatsoever, but when mixed with my mother's culinary charisma, as well as tomato paste, garlic, carrots, a secret ingredient or two, and lots of water, they were transformed into the legendary stuff, the ambrosia from which my mom could make meatballs, hamburgers, and even nolonez, a delicious vegetarian substitute for bolognese sauce. Rumor traveled fast about the stuff. One day, a boy I didn't know, who was at least a year older than me, introduced himself and asked if what they said about my mother was true. Could she really make food that tasted like hamburger, pizza, and rubber all at the same time? I nodded yes. If you can set me up with some, I give you five liras, the kid said. To make sure I understood this was a serious offer, he pulled out the appropriate bill, green with a portrait of Albert Einstein. It was a bizarre situation, and I wasn't really sure what to say. I'll come over someday, the kid suggested. Tell your mom we're friends or something, or that I'm helping you with your homework, and then I'll stay for dinner. I still said nothing. Come on, he nudged me. Help me out, seriously. Pizza, hamburger, and rubber together? I have to try. Of course he felt that way. It's not every day you have a chance to eat something extraordinary. Something that only one unique woman could invent. The Walter White of our neighborhood. My mother. Thank you.
Yes, Edgar. Ira. <laughs> yes, Edgar. I have this story I gotta tell you. It has nothing to do with it, but he just said, I want to tell you the story, so I'm okay. <laughs> so it, it's, okay. Like, it's like I, I try to write down a story, and this story is that about a, a year before my mother died, I came to visit her and she was in her bed, in her, the bedroom, and I was sitting next to her. And then she said, could you please close the door? I want to say something private. And it was very weird because it was the, only the two of us in the apartment. So I said, it must be something very, very secretive, you know, if you need to close the door. And I closed the door and I sat down and she said, look, I want to ask you a favor. Uh, you know, now that the dad, the father is gone, And I see that I'm kind of beginning to lose my lucidity a little. So if you see that you know that I'm totally not lucid, and if you have some kinds of sensations that I'm not happy, then you just wait until I'm asleep, and then you take a pillow and put it on my face. And, you know, just kind of gently wait a little bit. In one minute, I'm gone, you know, with all my smoking and stuff. So I, I just want to ask you if I hope it's okay. And I was kind of a, a shaken. I was a little bit frozen. And then she looked at me and she said, look, it's as if she, like, I didn't want to bother you. But, you know, your sister is ultra-orthodox. She can't do that, you know. And your brother, you know, he, he has such a big heart. He's, he's soft. You're, you're the strongest, you know. You're the strong guy. And I said to her, Mom... <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm not that strong. And then she looked at me and she smiled and she said, you are, but it doesn't matter. You want to have a cake? And then we got up and she gave me a cake and we drank tea and we talked and she smiled and we had like the nicest conversation and we hugged. And, and basically when I wrote this story down, I remember this story as kind of a very close moment with my mother, but it wasn't filed under my mother asking me to murder her. You know, it was basically my mom, a little bit afraid, wants me to do something. Then she sees I'm unhappy about it. And in a second, she doesn't care anymore what's good for her. She'll die demented. And she did die demented. But she will not put me in a position. She said to me, I wouldn't want you to do something that you, you feel uncomfortable about. She said that to you in that conversation. Yeah, she said, when I said to her, I can't put a pillow on your head. And she said, why? And I said, and I, said I can't. And she said, look, I don't want you to do anything that you're uncomfortable about. And this idea was that really, that reality could be harsh, violent. I could kill my mom. I could not kill my mom. But there is another level. And this is a level of like two human beings who are close to each other, who can ask each other for everything, who can say no to everything who, you know, who doesn't feel uncomfortable. There is no ego there. So it was for me like kind of a, some kind of a mirror of a healthy relationship. Story number seven. The first angel you see. I only ever heard this story once. My parents had just come home from a wedding and my mother was completely drunk. If she'd had one less drink that night, I probably wouldn't be able to share this story with you. It's a little hazy in my imagination, but in the story, my mom is little. It's during the war and her mother 
My grandmother is holding her hand while carrying mom's baby brother. And the three of them race up the stairs in some building. Mom can hear the footsteps of the people chasing them. When they get to the rooftop, my grandmother tells mom to run as fast as she can and jump down to the roof of the next building, which is slightly lower. Don't be scared, she says. You can do it. Mom waits, expecting her mother to say, and I'll be right behind you. But she just stands there, out of breath from the run. When will I see you again, my mother asks, and her mother bends over so their faces are very close and says, You're going to run as fast as you can, and then jump as far as you can. And as soon as you land, you're going to keep running and not stop until you get to daddy. After that, you grow up into a woman, and you will meet a man and fall in love, and start a family with him. And in the end, you grow old and die. And right after you die, go up to the first angel you see and tell him, I'm going to see my mom. And he'll know, because I'll talk to him before you get there, and he'll bring you to me. This is not where the story ends. After my mom jumped onto the other roof, she didn't run as fast as she could, the way her mother had instructed her. Instead, she hid and watched the Nazi soldiers kill her mother and smash her little brother's head against a brick wall. When she told me this, I could feel her guilt, but I also sensed how proud she was of her mother, who even in the last moments of her life refused to lie to her daughter. 47 years after she told me this story, my mother died, and the last words she said to me were, I'm going to see my mom. Story number eight, a good day. When I was a kid, I absolutely loved eating at restaurants. In those days, in socialist Israel of the 1970s, going out for dinner was such a rare and decadent event that it was impossible not to get excited about it. Once every few months, we'd drive to Victor's place, a Tel Aviv eatery located next to a junkyard. After dinner, while mom and dad sipped Turkish coffee and smoked a cigarette, my brother would take my sister and me on an exciting tour of the junkyard, which we called the car cemetery. We'd stop at each crumpled vehicle and try to guess how it had ended up there, trampled by an elephant, shot out of a cannon, or just driven too quickly and rammed into a stoplight. One Saturday, when I was about six, we went to Victor's place for my mother's birthday. The waiter was an older man with a mustache, and he informed us apologetically that due to a kitchen malfunction, the restaurant would not be serving fries. The rest of the family received this news with indifference, but I took it really hard. Instead of a big pile of delicious, greasy fries, the waiter put a dish of white rice on the table. White rice. And within seconds, the lavish feast I'd been looking forward to for weeks turned into just another family dinner. My mother, 
sensing my frustration, asked me if everything was all right. Nothing was all right, I snapped. If I couldn't have fries, the whole meal was a waste of time. And this birthday, which was supposed to be fun, was now the worst day of my life. Mom listened patiently to my complaints. And when I was done, she put the back of her warm hand on my neck and asked me in half a whisper to tell her how many people were sitting in the restaurant. Being a good boy, I methodically counted them all. Saturday afternoon was one of the busiest time at Victor's. And beside our table, there were 26 diners. 26? My mom exclaimed with a whistle. <sighs> That's a lot. Now, could you please tell me what all these people are holding in their hands? Oh, come on, I said with a grin. That's easy. It's a restaurant. They're holding knives and forks. Mom was impressed. 26 people. 26 hungry human beings sitting at their tables, each eating only what's on their own plate. 26 people holding knives, and yet not a single one of them is stabbing anyone else. She leaned over, planted a soft kiss on my forehead, and said, Let's agree that this is a pretty good day. Carrot. Most of the stories today about his mom were originally written for an exhibit about her called Inside Out at the Jewish Museum in Berlin. It runs till March 19th. If you like these stories today, uh, one of Eckhart's books is a book of memoirish essays like these called Seven Good Years. He also sends out a weekly short story in a free Substack newsletter called Alphabet Soup. Chuck Bro. Eckhart says this song was one of his mom's favorites, and she would sing it to him when he was a kid. C'est dur de mourir au printemps, tu sais, mais je pars aux fleurs, la paix dans l'âme, car vu que t'es bon comme du pain blanc, je sais que tu prendras soin de ma femme, et je veux qu'on rit, je veux qu'on danse, je veux qu'on s'amuse comme des fous, je veux qu'on rit, je veux qu'on danse, quand c'est qu'on mettra dans trop. Well, program is produced today by me and Ellen Baker. People who put together today's show include Sean Cole, Michael Kamate, Hannah Joffrey Walt, Valerie Kipnis, Joe Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Charlotte Sleeper, Francis Swanson, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor, Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Jessica Cohn translated Edgar's stories into English. Special thanks today to Gal Bear, Nimrod Carrot, Lev Carrot for technical help, and Chris Crawford. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite programs, there's tons of other stuff. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. His New Year's resolution this year, come up with more zingers. I thought I was having a hard time coming up with my resolution. He popped up right away. You can always be less ugly. I'm Aaron Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. <laughs>
Je veux qu'on rit, je veux qu'on danse Quand c'est qu'on me mettra dans 